Okay, welcome to our second session on Francis Bacon's New Atlantis. Now, the, the text doesn't break itself up, obviously, into parts, um, or that is to say there's no sections or chapters, but I think Bacon breaks the book apart into a fairly or readily recognizable structure, um, and the structure seems to be something along the lines of there's an opening, then you have the priest, Abensalom, um, give them two different talks. And then um, they get to witness the feast of the father. And then they have a conversation uh, with a Jewish man, Joabin. And then they meet um, with the father of Solomon's house. So it's sort of broken up into those different accounts of the way of life of the people of Bensalom. So today, or rather, I suppose in this session, we're going to cover the two questions that they ask the priest. The first question that they ask is, um, how on earth was Christianity revealed here, or how did it emerge, given that this island seems to be so far away from where all the Christians are? The second question that they ask, um, and this comes sort of the next day, is how does how is it the case that Ben Salam knows so much about the rest of the world, but the rest of the world knows nothing about Ben Salam? You can see how the first question is a lot, in a way, like nicer to ask than the second one. The second one looks a little nosy. The other question looks a bit pious. So I guess that raises maybe a question for us um, as we start to think about the sailor's disposition more, or especially the narrator's disposition towards the world. Is he asking um, a prudential question? That is, is he sort of saying like, okay, so I know these guys are Christians, and so therefore I really need to make sure that's the sort of first question that we ask. Or on the basis of the evidence you've seen so far, is it just the case that he's an honest Christian who wants to know more about Christianity? That's the sort of like duality that I think Bacon's presenting us with or that those seem to be sort of two of these kind of plausible interpretations we might make of him and his activities um, that we've seen so far. Okay, so the priest um, then goes on to report a sort of incredible miracle that happened, um, that the uh, revelation of God's word in this case was a, a kind of spectacle or a very big miracle that a lot of people got to witness. How about we read that account? Um, this would be on page 73 if you have the second edition, and it will be about uh, 10 pages in if you have the first edition. Okay, so how about, yeah, we read there from the middle of the page and just read his whole account of the miracle. Now, as I read this out loud or you read it to yourself, try to ask yourself, um, is there anything suspicious or strange about the miracle? That is, does it look to be definitely miraculous, um, or are there some things that might lead you to conclude there's something suspicious going on? Okay, so I'll read now. Quote, About 20 years after the ascension of our Savior, it came to pass that there was seen by the people of Renfusa, a city upon the eastern coast of our island, within night. The night was cloudy and calm. As it might be some mile into the sea, a great pillar of light, not sharp, but in form of a column or cylinder, rising from the sea a great way up towards heaven. And on the top of it was seen a large cross of light, more bright and resplendent than the body of the pillar, upon which so strange a spectacle the people of the city gathered apace, together upon the sands, to wonder, and so after put themselves into a number of small boats to go nearer to this marvelous light. But when the boats were come within about sixty yards of the pillar, they found themselves all bound, and could go no further. Yet so as they might move to go about, but might not approach nearer. So as the boats stood all as in a theater, building, beholding this light as a heavenly sign, it so fell out 
that there was one of the boats, one of the wise men of the society of Solomon's house, which house or college, my good brethren, is the very eye of the kingdom, who having who having a while attentively and devoutly viewed and contemplated this pillar and cross, fell down upon his face, and then raised himself upon his knees, and lifting up his hands to heaven, made his prayer in this manner. Okay. So does anything look strange to you in this? Um, well, so the first thing I'm wondering, and this is something a student had actually pointed out to me um, when I taught this a couple of years ago, um, is that the column of light rises out of the sea. It does not come down from heaven. Now, of course, I suppose um, if God wants light to come from the sea, it can certainly come up from the sea. Um, but nonetheless, um, it seems in a certain sense, maybe um, that you might expect the light to be coming down from heaven. Um, in that way, especially at night, it would sort of like be, um, yeah, just mysterious as to exactly what the source of it is. Where so, But it comes up out of the water. Um, now, maybe that's not suspicious, and you could say, like, no, you're reading too much into it. You're reading with too suspicious of an eye, and I'm open to that possibility. Um, but another detail that I want to call your attention to um, is that it said all the boats stood um, as in a theater. Now, Bacon could have used any word he wanted to, um, but he uses the word theater. Now, why do you think that he uses the word theater? I mean, what happens in a theater? Well, um, a theater is a house of illusion. You know, it's a place where you really try to dramatize something or you try to um, have some sort of illusion appear to be real or you want people to be so invested in this story, um, they react emotionally as if it's real. So this is a miracle that happens in what Bacon calls a theater. Um, now, something else um, that I think your translator or editor kind of points out in a footnote um, near the beginning of this is that this happens in the town of Renfusa. Um, in Greek, that would basically mean like the nature of sheep or sheep-natured. Um, so mm, some scholars have taken that remark um, and thought that maybe it meant that there's a way in which somehow sheep are being tricked um, or deluded into believing something like this. That Bacon is, in a certain sense, um, kind of quietly through a couple key words indicating to us that um, this miracle is not genuine. That rather it may have been a, a sort of staged were put on by members of the House of Solomon. Now, as you'll see um, in the last session that we have on the text, um, the people of the House of Solomon have mastery over water um, and over light. Um, and in addition, they talk all about the ways in which they can deceive all of our human senses. Now, this doesn't... Mm, we So, well, I guess we'll have to pay more attention as we go, but I'm thinking that there's a way in which um, this alleged miracle might not actually be so miraculous after all. Okay, so let's just read the passage um, that picks up where we left off. Um, this is the uh, member of the House of Salomon, so one of the scientists um, who this happens to. Uh, Lord God of heaven and earth, thou hast vouchsafed of thy grace to those of our order, to know thy works of creation and the secrets of them, and to discern as far as appertaineth to the generations of men between divine miracles, works of nature, works of art, and impostures and illusions of all sorts. I do here acknowledge and testify before this people that the thing which we now see before our eyes is thy finger and a true miracle. And for as much as we learn in our books that thou never workest miracles but to a divine and excellent end, 
the laws of nature are thine own laws, and thou exceedest them, but not upon the great, not but upon great cause. We most humbly beseech thee to prosper this great sign, and to give us the interpretation and use of it in mercy, which thou dost in some part secretly promise by sending it unto us. Okay, so I guess. Um, it seems to me striking in a way that it's um, the scientist who speaks first. Um, and, and in the passage right after I just left off, um, his boat is the only one that's allowed to advance forward. Um, now, in addition, I don't know. I don't know. Does this strike you as um, a, a kind of typical prayer um, or not? I guess I'm curious uh, because it almost just looks more like a kind of a, an account. Like he's like, yeah, I already know how this goes. Um um, and it doesn't seem like he's really praising God. It seems like he's just saying like, oh yeah, God, we already know all about you. And these are the things that we know that we're allowed to know. And maybe there are other things we can't know. I don't know. I don't know what you think of that thought. Um, but at any rate, it strikes me as at least somewhat, or especially surprising, um, that a scientist in particular would sort of assume that something's a miracle um, without investigating it, just by looking at it once. Um, especially because I think we get this sense um, when we get to the last part of the New Atlantis is that these scientists um, are more or less doing things along the lines um, of what Bacon sort of hopes will happen. So in, in our edition that we have here, there's also the work called The Great Instauration, um, and there Bacon sort of outlines a lot of the hopes that he has for science and the different wings of it. And he outlines the um, scientific method um, in addition there. So I guess what I'm saying is these are scientists that Bacon sort of admires or see, who seem to be carrying out a project similar to what Bacon in his own life hopes to carry out. Obviously, they're more advanced or further along than he is. Um, but nonetheless, they seem to be Baconian in their approach. So now, of course... You could have a like a like legit hardcore good scientist who's also a Christian, but that person might be interested in like investigating whether or not something is caused by natural causes or whether it's uh, simply a miracle. So this guy just sort of, without checking it at all, just says, "Oh yeah, that thing's a miracle," and we already know for sure it's a miracle, even though he seems to sharply distinguish between miracles and non-miracles. And it seems like the only way you can distinguish between those things is if you investigate them. So he seems awfully ready with an account and awfully ready just to call it a miracle and to say, like, nope, no need to look into this one. Um, and I guess like a, a kind of funny addition that Bacon sort of points out to us um, in that next paragraph after we left off reading is that this miracle is so miraculous that there are some books of the Bible that weren't even written at the time that are available for... Um, the people of Ben Salam to read. Um, so it's super miraculous um, in a way. So, okay, so let's reiterate the sort of like uh, two different interpretive routes that we might take by looking at this passage, or at least what seemed to me to be the most obvious interpretive routes. Either this is an account of a genuine miracle, or it is engineered by the scientists of Salomon's house. Um, now, if we take that second prong and we say, if we say it is engineered, Another, I guess, kind of interesting question emerges for us. Why would they choose Christianity? That is to say, if you're a scientist and you're making up um, any kind of religion that you want um, for whatever reason, why choose Christianity? 
Um, and as we go further in the text, does it seem to be the case that the people of Ben Salem are sort of like really stout or devout Christians or something like that? Um, or is this something a little bit watered down? Um, so, yeah, and I guess maybe another question we can ask is, why would a technologically sophisticated city need religion at all? So Bacon is, right, he's designing a utopia, um, but it seems like he's not necessarily designing one that's sort of, um, it, he's not designing a utopia that departs too far from ordinary human psychology. So he's not just like saying like, uh, oh yeah, you know, we can do anything we want. I think in a certain sense, Bacon might be trying to think about, okay, this is the way that human beings are. So given the way that they are, what kind of community would they fit into? So I'm wondering if in some sense Bacon might be admitting that human beings can't help but be drawn to some kind of religious or sacred notions. Um, or perhaps that reality needs, or sorry, morality needs to be bolstered by some kind of religious authority. Um, so that when somebody sort of says like, oh, well, I, I don't want to believe in that. There's some sort of like um, extra backbone in it um, or some sort of like extra thing um, to appeal to when somebody doesn't want to obey. I don't know. I mean, I think, um, yeah, this is a really um, interesting thing, or I guess like a really interesting account that the priest gives. So I'm kind of curious if you if you are convinced um, by some of the alternatives I'm outlining, or if there's some sort of third way or alternative route that you see that makes more sense of what's going on in the passage. Okay, so that's sort of like the end of the first meeting that they have, um, and then the priest comes back the next day. And the second question that's covered then, or the question that's covered on this day is, um, how do you, the people of Bensalem, know so much of the world, and yet the world seems to know nothing of you? Um, strikingly, um, the priest points out that those in the past um, were much more advanced technologically um, and culturally than Europeans today. That is to say, the peoples of North and South America um, and elsewhere um, were much, much more powerful um, than the Europeans of today. So that is to say, he's saying that there's kind of like ancient civilizations um, that were destroyed and that new civilizations sort of sprouted out from amongst those ruins or something, or lack of ruins in a way. So it's sort of like a startling claim. So you have to try to put yourself in the shoes um, of this European sailor who's suddenly hearing this for the first time. Um, and see, and, and it might be easier to take it more seriously if you too were um, sort of seeing this like technologically advanced people or something like that. Um, but nonetheless, just try to see it from their perspective. Um, okay, so nonetheless, though, despite the fact that there were these civilizations, the priest points out that a long-lasting flood did them in. Um, now, if we remember uh, Machiavelli's line from chapter 25 of The Prince about fortune being a river, um, we can see that these people... Uh, were not well equipped to handle anything um, that would come in the future. In a certain sense, they didn't put up dikes and levees or things like that. Now, of course, a flood of this magnitude maybe would require a bit more planning, but if they're more advanced than the Europeans, you know, maybe there's some way that they could have tried to, um, I don't know, yeah, build some kind of like strange, weird, like a, um, a boat or something like that to live on. I don't know. All that is to say is like if, if you are more technologically advanced and have imagination and are thinking of any kind of like doom that could be headed your way, um, there's a way in which like Machiavelli would blame you. That in a certain sense, you're only you only lose to fortune because you're not looking ahead far enough. Anyway, I'm I'm just curious if like maybe um, since Bacon has in his work the advancement of learning, there he kind of admits his admiration for Machiavelli explicitly. I wonder if this is a kind of nod back to Machiavelli. Um, 
nonetheless, I think the Machiavellian reasoning still obtains in a way. Um, Okay, so the priest points out uh, that the Native Americans in North America are a younger people than those of Europe, um, and that this accounts for their lack of technological development. Okay, so this, this is a, a claim that raises a host of questions for us. One, um, or maybe I guess this is a sort of series of little questions, um, but do all cultures have an eventual evolution um, as far as moving into technology? Is that just something that happens for all of them? Um, or could it be the case that uh, a culture could sort of reject that and say, no, there like are alternative ways of life that might be preferable, or that there are costs associated um, with technology, and those aren't costs that we're interested in. Um, you can imagine this being the case. Um, but at any rate, I'm wondering if like Bacon is sort of suggesting that. So, like today, you know, when we say that we've made progress, you know, or we're in a better position than human beings were at earlier points in time part of our assumption is that like technological development is good and that it improves us as a civilization or as a people or whatever you want to call it. Um, at any rate, it seems like Bacon has a sort of like baked into the, his notion of progress as the, um, a more or less technically advanced nation would be, um, a better or a worse one or something like that. Or that like, as they gain more knowledge, of course, they'll take on technology. Of course, technology is good. Um, but I don't think Bacon's just a sort of like naive, about technology um, being good. I'm sure that he's thought about some of the problems or drawbacks, um, but on the basis of his thinking about the drawbacks, probably just thought like, well, you know what? Um, yeah, there are some costs, but what we get out of it is so much better um, and gives us things that we want. And we'll, we'll see um, sort of at the end of our reading, um, I guess a lot more information about what Bacon must think that we want to get out of science and why that might be good for us. Okay. Um, so, at any rate, the flood did not hit Bensalem by a stroke of fortune. Um, the loss of naval tech in the rest of the world, or t naval technology in the rest of the world, prevented them from finding Bensalem. So Bensalem remained amongst those old civilizations, and all the other ones sort of fell away. Uh, but nonetheless, Bensalem has kept uh, current on all the developments across the world, especially when it comes to science. Okay, so after talking about the demise of these uh, other ancient civilizations, uh, the priest moves on in his conversation to talk about Solomana, the lawgiver of Ben Salon. Um, okay, so Solomana saw that the island could be self-sufficient, that it had really great land for growing things. Um, and in addition, as far as the isolation goes, or, or the reasoning for their isolation, is that he did not want to change the character of the nation too much, uh, especially its moral character or moral taste. Now, of course, that could certainly sound intolerant to us, but even in sort of like everyday experience, you know, I think maybe we talked about this once in class, I can't remember, but, um, you know, just even like the idea of something like keep Austin weird um, or something like that is a kind of like statement of saying Austin has a really cool moral character um, or it has some kind of like uh, liberal eccentricity or something like that. And um, that will be ruined if like a bunch of uh, like rich people who, don't have the exact same values move in there. Um, that is like, yeah, so that is a way in which like people wanted to like kind of keep Austin isolated. They're basically saying like, it's good as it is and it will become worse if it changes. Its moral character will change if different people move into the area. Um, or you could just think about it this way. Like uh, you can imagine whether you're, a, if you're a Christian or if you're an atheist. Um, now, some of you like might, like as a Christian, you might enjoy like your conversations with atheists. But there might be other Christians who are saying, like, no, I'd rather raise my kid in a Christian nation 
um, where like all the television shows like showed people going to church or doing you know good things or whatever. Likewise, you could also imagine like being an atheist um, and finding Christianity really repressive and think like, no, this is a bad thing, and I don't want my kid to have to um, be affected by those mores. That there's a kind of um, moral disgust that some Christians and atheists have for each other, and so you can imagine them wanting to live in a nation that was at least more like-minded about such an important question. So all all that is a way of saying you could see like maybe why Salamana could be interested in at least for a long period of time um, trying to keep the nation isolated um, for the sake of its moral character or something like that. Um, nonetheless, they still made laws that uh, provide provisions for strangers. So we've seen the sailors here um, get a chance to, yeah, get healed up, get all uh, the food that they need and comfortable um, in a comfortable setting. So they're also pretty humane in the way that they treat strangers. And as it happens, most strangers that come to Ben Salam actually stay there for the rest of their lives. So it almost like seems like uh, Solomon is, or his laws that he set down um, are happy for some people to come, um, but just like not a wholesale change in their moral character, like all at once um, or something like that. Uh, yeah, and, and it sounds like most of the sailors or people who wind up accidentally showing up in Ben Salam, um, the majority of them stay. But get this, the priest uh, mentions that 13 visitors have turned back home. So that means there's 13 people who weren't satisfied um, by what Ben Salam has to offer. So we have to think about what, mm, what kind of person is it that would not be satisfied by living in Ben excuse me, in Ben Salam. Um, what kind of human being would reject living here? We'll have to think about that more as we go on throughout the story, but it might be a question you can write down for yourself and think about as you move through the text. Um, and we might say, too, that by saying that some people would reject living in Ben Salam, this is Bacon giving us an indication um, that his city might not be full, might not be able to satisfy all human types. Um, or that some will find this place to be unbearable in certain ways. Um, so Bacon, in a certain sense, is even realistic about his utopia, in that he might think that it will please most people, um, but he kind of readily admits that it won't please all people. Okay, so as the speech winds up, we also learn um, that the thing that they're that the people of Ben Salam are most proud of is Solomon's house, um, and that's the place where they try to discover the quote true secrets of nature. So science is considered the highest activity of the people of Ben Salam, the thing that's praised the most. As we'll find out in the last section of the book, they make statues for inventors or for people who somehow um, improve mankind scientifically or technologically. Um, and they also claim that science is co entirely consistent with praising God's creation, that it is in fact the discovery or articulation of that creation. Um, okay, so then the priest also mentions that they send out merchants of light um, to go see how science is developing in the rest of the world. Um, ben Salam's pretty confident, you know, in, uh, I guess it's creations, but just in case somebody else saw something that they didn't on their way forward, Ben Salam wants to make sure that they know um, what's going on there. Now, in, an interesting thing is that it's, it's said that the merchants are not above telling lies. Um, that they don't say that they're from Ben Salam, they pretend to be from somewhere else. So that's, that is to say they conceal themselves. Um, and um, yeah, I guess this is just, it's kind of interesting the way that the story works. So there's a kind of, the people at Ben Salam will kind of give an account of like why they um, hate lies. 
And yet you constantly feel, see them making exceptions for when it's okay to tell a lie. Um, and we'll see that a little bit later when we get to the House of Solomon. But um, nonetheless, it's worth noting here that the merchants of light tell lies when they go abroad. Okay, so that's uh, an account of the priest's two speeches of the first question, um, how did Christianity emerge in Ben Salam? And then an account of his question um, about why Ben Salam knows so much about the world and the world knows nothing about Ben Salam. 